this afternoon. But in a couple of weeks after the weekend away, we'll be coming back to this passage again and really going and focusing our time then in verse 17 uh, through to verse 21. Uh, I want to spend a bit longer on this. I hope that becomes clear why I wanted to do that, because it's such a... uh, an integral passage, if you like, to our faith. And I'm going to spend really the focus of our, most of our time today on just two verses, verses 15 and verses 16. I hope that becomes apparent why we're going to do that uh, in just a moment. Why don't we pray then as we begin? Let's ask for God's help and let's pray. Paul said in uh, chapter 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you. Let him be eternally condemned. So, Heavenly Father, please, as we examine this gospel that Paul received from you and preached and defended, may we be careful to receive it, diligently live in the light of it, and ruthlessly do everything we can not to distort it. Help us now to marvel at this undeserved gift, this gift of grace, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you work hard, you'll get a bonus, maybe. Maybe not. Civil servants are looking at me slightly sceptical there, aren't you? But, you know, if you work hard, you get some kind of reward. You get a bonus. You get promoted, maybe. Maybe you just get a bit of a pat on the back and a bit of recognition. Well done. You've done a good job. There's an incentive, isn't there, to to hard work. If you bake a rather slender cake in a randomly positioned marquee somewhere in the middle of Somerset, you might even win the BBC Bake Off. You know, there's an incentive to your hard work. If you sing well, you won't get voted out of X Factor that week. If you pitch up some dodgy notes, you might. Yeah, if you dance badly, you'll get... Chucked out of, you know, you know, you get the idea. You know, if you score more goals, you win the game. If you, uh, if you do well at school, you get rewarded. My boys, you know, they get the house points still. Remember house points, you know. And if they don't do so well, it's detention time. You, you get the idea. The, the way that we are, how we behave, how we perform, it will determine what we receive, what we earn, how we progress. In life, there is incentive in there, but there's also punishment a little pat on the shoulder sometimes from your boss, whatever it may be. We get that idea. It might sound a little bit kind of animalistic to some of us, and it's true to a degree. But we understand this kind of carrot and stick kind of mentality. We know what it is to feel the stick of a boss. Come on, you're not pulling your weight, get, get working a bit harder. But we also know what it is to receive the incentive, a bit of a carrot, don't we, at some times? If you do that, there might be a little bonus coming your way. Animals, you know, kind of love this way of thinking. Now, many of you will know I'm not an animal fan at all, apart from eating them. I find that very pleasurable. (laughs) But you can clearly train an animal, can't you, with an incentive, a little reward, or perhaps a little bit of, you know, discipline, some punishment at, at some point, you know, relatively and sensibly. And we live in a world where the relationship between what we do and the reward we get, it's intrinsic to our lives, isn't it? Therefore, we are sceptical, aren't we, of anything that's free. We're incentivized sometimes, or we're kind of cajoled into doing things. But anything that comes our way that is just free, we become slightly sceptical about that, don't we? 
Can you imagine if you walked into Sainsbury's, your local Sainsbury's, and uh, there was those lovely fridges at the back, freezers at the back, and it, the Ben and Jerry's ice cream is always positioned right in my eye line as I walk in. And can you imagine above those freezers it said, buy zero, get three free. What would you do? Well, I personally would probably try and scoop... No, but no, I'd probably go to the shop assistant as quickly as possible and say, I'm afraid, I think there's a typo at the top there. I think you've printed it incorrectly. I mean, it just seems it's too good to be true, doesn't it? We do not understand. We don't see it around us. We don't experience it in our lives, in our work, in our whatever it may be. We don't experience this unmerited kindness. Or as we've just sung, grace. We live and operate in a world where the relationship between what we do and the reward we get... It's intrinsic to our lives. But the gospel of grace that Paul has been preaching takes us away from that kind of normal way of life. The way that we can be right with God, the way that we're to be righteous, the word is in the the Bible, is not connected to what you do. And that is what Paul has been teaching again and again and again. It's a gift, a free gift. Neither can we earn it, nor can we, we merit, it, merit it in any way. Rather, the righteousness that the Christian knows is a gift of grace, of undeserved kindness. See, heaven is not full of a bunch of people who have kind of reached a certain moral standard. They've got to that line, you know, tipping the scales of kind of goodness and morality. Rather, heaven is full of people who have... Uh, reached a certain moral awareness, if you like, and recognised they will never, they will never be right before God on their own doing. They can't get some house points. None of us can score enough goals or bake enough cakes or please enough bosses or, you know, we can't do any of that and suddenly turn up the the gates of heaven and expect a, a kind of a warm welcome in. You can't even be born into a royal household and wear some odd replica dress thing, you know, and be baptised in a palace. See, none of that matters. None of us will ever be good enough, righteous enough. Rather, righteousness, as Paul's been saying again and again, comes from God through trusting in Jesus and that gift of grace that he is. It's a free gift. It's an undeserved gift. And it makes no sense to us, does it, in some ways. Science can't explain it. Anywhere anywhere we look in the world, we, we, we just don't see this. None of us would ever have made this up. But it is the gospel that Paul and the apostles have received from God. That is, as he said in chapter one, it's it's not a gospel from man at all, is it? And to depart from the gospel, he's already said, is to know no gospel at all. This is not the gospel if you depart in any way from this gospel of free grace. As last week we saw, it takes us from the freedom that we can know in Christ and actually makes us slaves. Now, this gospel of grace has been talked about by Paul in Galatians so far. It's been defended. But now today, he defines it. Clearly, succinctly, 
and actually very repetitively as well. It seems as though Paul wants us to be very, very clear on this one main point. What is the gospel? As a parent, and actually I used to be a teacher as well, I have this terrible habit, most teachers do, of saying things more than once. Reiteration is really important, you see. Repeating oneself actually makes something very clear in, in the pupil's or the child's mind. Going over something a number of times, you see, just drives the point home. Get the idea? Paul does the same. Look at it if you can. Verse 15 and 16. You'll see it here. Follow with me. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law. Now, actually, better translated is works of the law there. But every time he's putting observing the law, it's really works of the law. What we do to try and merit ourselves before God. Continue there. But by faith in Jesus Christ, he says. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So here's our kind of main point for today. Kind of one point, and there's two little application points uh, near and the end. One point, because Paul really wants to make one clear point, and he repeats it uh, a number of times. I know many uh, of us believe and understand this, but so often I find myself, I don't know about you, I, I find myself kind of functionally, day-to-day -day kind of life, living as though I need to try and justify myself. That I need to try and, if I do this, that will kind of contribute to my salvation in some way. We need reminding of this. So often. Look at verse uh, 16. Paul says it three times. We are justified by faith in Christ. Twice, you see, he says it positively. Right at the beginning, a man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You got it? Second time, halfway through the verse. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith. Second time. And if you haven't got it quite by then, uh, you also get it negatively at the end of verse 16. Because by observing the law, as doing works to try and please God, no one will be justified. The point is, we'll be justified by faith in Christ alone. Now, anyone know about what day it is today? Special day? It is Reformation Sunday. You all knew that, didn't you? You woke up this morning and said... It doesn't matter about the clocks, it's Reformation Sunday. That's the key to today. It's an anniversary where Martin Luther uh, began the Reformation with, against the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. Now, some people have summarised the Reformation with three, uh, five Latin phrases, five solas as they're generally called. And it's the biblical faith of Christians that Martin Luther, John Calvin, many others gave their lives to kind of point us back to. They are this, sola scripture, they're coming on the screens, which means scripture alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola gracia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solo dea gloria, to the glory of God alone. That is what the reformers gave their lives to defend in the church across Europe. So how wonderful we're looking at this subject today. We are justified, solus Christus, in Christ alone. 
Justified is simply the same word in Greek as the word righteous. If you didn't know justified, righteous, it's the same word. But what does it mean? I've put a little uh, kind of description up here for you by a very famous theologian called Jim Packer. I think this is a helpful summary of what um, justified, to be justified really means. Read with me. To justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. But how? How is someone justified? How are you and I justified? Or so, how, you know, to use the other phrase, how is someone counted righteous? As we look at our own lives, uh, none of us could say, even of the last 24 hours, maybe two hours if it's me, that none of us could say, oh, I've lived absolutely perfectly with, with total righteousness. Think about your thought life, what you've said, what you've done. How can we therefore be righteous before God, right before a perfect and holy God? We let ourselves down. We we fail even our own standards, don't we? That's why I have a snooze button on my phone. Uh, You know, never mind kind of God's standards. Look at it. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation. That of acquittal and legal immunity. You see, we all, we all deserve condemnation before a perfect and holy and just God. But we get acquittal. We are justified. But how does God come to that verdict? Is it by what we do? Is it by any kind of moral attainment? By us observing the law? As he says in Galatians 2 here. No. And that's why Paul shows with such clarity and such repetition uh, why in these, you know, in these verses that the way to be justified is not anywhere to be found in us. It is solely found in Christ and in Christ alone. By trusting in Jesus, we can receive the status of being right with God for free. And that is so hard, isn't it, for us to comprehend because it is an, it's an act of utter undeserved kindness. It is grace. And it is so countercultural. And we must be clear on this because most of the other religions around the world, they kind of go, yeah, kind of nod to that. They tip the hat to that. But we've got to be clear, it's not cooperation either which is what pretty much every other man-made religion believes. See, it is human default, isn't it, in our, in our kind of thinking. We can contribute to something you know, in every area of our lives, that we live or earn some level of righteousness. And Jesus kind of steps in at the end. He says, I'll top up the rest for you. Well done. I'll just give you a little top up at the end. He'll get you in over there. Get you across the line. And what does Paul say to that? He says a categorical no. It is exclusively Christ's gift of his perfect life being counted as ours, reckoned as ours. 
That is the only reason that the verdict can go from condemnation to acquittal. To being justified. As it says, as Paul says, it is not by works of law or by observing law. Anything that you've done. And that is, Paul is saying to the church in Galatia, it is not by adhering to anything of the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Old Covenants. You tried so hard, but that's not going to gain you entry into heaven to be, my far, uh, to be with God for eternity. See, God's people had shown again and again and again that they were incapable of keeping God's law perfectly, but we don't like to be told that we've got nothing to contribute, nothing to offer. You think about it, when you get invited out for dinner, even around to a friend's house, what's the immediate thing that you respond, generally, on the phone or via text? You say, what can I bring? Isn't it? What can I contribute to the evening of fun that we're about to have? You love to say that, don't you? And it's right, and I'm not saying we should be impolite. Let's, <laughs> you know, we take our flowers around, we take our chocolates, we, we bring a bottle of wine, some fruit, whatever it may be. That's great and that's good. We love to contribute. And yet, you know, by that we're not saying to the person, oh, I brought this wine because I know the kind of wine that you normally serve. We're, we're saying, actually... We love to be like that. We love to offer our kindness. It is polite to bring something. I remember a few, um, a few years ago on holiday, I was just doodling, drawing a picture after lunch. I can't remember which son it is, and I know Zach's here, so it may not be you. Um, but um, it, it, I was just doodling, I finished this picture off. And uh, I think one of the boys picked up a pen and just coloured in one little section. And then for the rest of the day, they said, we did that. I spent about an hour on this little dude. I'm no artist at all, but you know, I'm drawing a little bit. Tiny little colouring. We did that straight away. We love to contribute, whether it's our dinner parties, whether, whatever we're involved in. We love to be part of things. To feel that we can offer something. But Paul is clear here, isn't it? It isn't a matter of what we do together with what Jesus does. However much we feel we would like to contribute to our eternal salvation, it is all Christ. Jesus does it all alone, not by the works of the law or by observing the law, verse 16. Paul is clear, but by observing the law, no one, he categorically says at the end of verse 16, no one will be justified. No one will be righteous before God. But all the world religions, they all have an element in them of observing a law that contributes to them, for them to be saved in some way. And we're told, wherever we look, we have to work to be righteous. We have to earn a merit to be right before God. But the gospel that Paul has received and preached in the church in Galatia is the gospel that relies wholly on the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life being counted as ours. And therefore the judgment can be justified and not condemned. Paul says it a lot of times, as have I. Because it is so important. We are not justified, that is made right by God, with God, by anything that we can do but only through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus lived 
and he lived according to the law, the works of the law, by observing the law perfectly throughout his life. And he offers you that perfect life. He says, you can be justified if you put your faith in me. That perfect life can be counted as yours. And you have to put your faith in that finished work, in his life and his death. As he says, it is finished in John 19 on the cross, doesn't it? That is, he's saying, you cannot add to this life. It's all done with. You just need to put your faith in it. Can you imagine, uh, if you, imagine Jesus, if you're like a masterpiece in an art gallery, you know, Van Gogh and... Rembrandt, and I'm feeling slightly insecure now with a number of artists around me. But, you know, greats of, you know, kind of a, a masterpieces of art. Can you imagine, like my son, walking up to a little bit of, you know, artwork like that at the National Gallery and just going, not quite finished there, have you, Picasso? You know, and saying, you know, it's not a finished work. Van Gogh, you got that bit wrong. Let me just shade in this little bit for you. You know, I guess you get arrested, but you get the picture. It would be utter madness, wouldn't it? Well, Jesus' work is, if you like, perfection. It is finished. It is complete. And yet we so often try to add to that finished, complete work to be saved. Oh, look, I've done this for you, God. I've, I've tried to do that. But all we need to do is put our faith in Jesus. That is how we're justified. This is the gospel. And this is what will save us for eternity, knowing not God's condemnation, but now his love for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. It is grace. Yes, it is. It's undeserved kindness from God to all who would trust, not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ. And Paul is not telling us the gospel is the way that is... Sorry, he's not, he's not kind of sharing this gospel in a, in a detached way. Because he places this, these two verses in the context of a kind of a bit of a, a couple of stories here. And we're going to go back to that story with Peter in just a moment. And what it does, I guess it, it will expose in us our dependence on our works of the law, our observing the law, of doing things to merit ourselves before God. But I hope that it will also encourage us to trust in Jesus Christ alone as verse 15 and 16 point us toward. So two points of application. These are really our kind of closing things. I've drilled that point home again and again and again because Paul drills home that point again and again and again. So firstly, application, we must oppose those who deny the gospel. Let's kind of just go over the story if we can. Paul's teaching is pretty clear. It comes in the heart of this passage where he's actually opposing his fellow apostle, Peter. And he's saying he's denying the gospel, essentially. On the face of things, it might seem like a minor thing that Peter's doing. Cast your eyes down to verse 11 and 12. You'll see what he's doing. You think, really, Paul, have you really gone over the top here? I mean, what's he doing? Peter, he used to eat with Gentile uh, Christians, that is, non-Jewish Christians. But then, as you see in verse 12, he begins to separate himself from them. And what you've got to say, is is that really a denial of gospel truth? Isn't Paul being just a bit heavy-handed? Isn't that your response, first off, when you look at that? What is going on here? Well, you see in verse 11, the, Paul, um, the two apostles met in Antioch. Paul opposes him face to face. It sounds a bit like one of those kind of boxing match things, wouldn't it? At the beginning of a boxing match, they kind of come right nose to nose there. Why, though? 
Paul says it very plainly, doesn't he, in verse 11. Look at it. He, that is Peter, is clearly in the wrong. Now, you see, the Old Testament, it instituted all sorts of uh, laws, ceremonial cleansing laws, okay? A, a Jew would meticulously have followed these laws in order to remain ceremonial, ceremonially clean and therefore acceptable to go and worship in the temple courts. Okay, if you want to look at those ceremonial laws, please do. Sorry, Leviticus 11, 15, and 20. So people, you see, couldn't draw near to God in the temple worship if they hadn't, if they, sorry, if they had eaten certain foods, if they touched a diseased person, or they had eaten with certain people, namely Gentiles. And here's the issue. Peter would have known these laws, but... He would have also known some other stuff too. Mark 7, I think it's going to come up on the screen now. Uh, Jesus was teaching, and look at it. He said, again, Jesus called uh, the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Jesus, if you like, said, I fulfilled those ceremonially cleansing laws now. Who wrote Mark's gospel? Peter. He knows this. And despite Peter receiving a vision from God in Acts 11, telling that he must, not, he, must call, uh, he must not call anything impure that God has made clean. He's seen this also with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. If you remember, Cornelius was a Gentile convert. And what does Peter go on to say? He says, God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him. So despite all that Peter knows of both the Old Testament and Jesus fulfilling that, He's now in this situation in Antioch, and what's he doing? He hypocritically withdraws himself from eating with his Gentile brothers in Christ, Christians. And his influence, look what happens, verse 13, everyone follows him. Well, what do we learn from that? Why is this so important? Peter hadn't changed his convictions. He still believed everything and wrote about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. That God accepts men from every nation. Yes, of course he does. The problem is, he's just struggling to live in line with the gospel that he was both preaching and believed in. What was he doing here? He was allowing cultural differences to be, actually become more important than gospel unity. And it was hypocritical, and it was infectious. And that is why Paul is so quick to oppose Peter in Antioch. You might be saying, yeah, I get that, Andy, but it's still quite detached. I don't think we're going to have in Earlsfield many people walking around calling themselves a circumcision group, placing this kind of pressure on us. I think you're right. I'm not sure you're going to meet folks like that in Melspar. But, you know, uh, you know... <laughs> The circumcision group, these Jewish Christians, they're trying to uphold these Jewish elements of these kind of ceremonial regulations. Uh, you know, you're not going to meet them, but what is the real issue here for Paul and it, opposing Peter? Let me just give you a couple of things, which I, I found really helpful in my reading this week. Firstly, I think he's being quite nationalistic. He's, there's a kind of a racial tension thing going on here, isn't there? Peter is saying, you can't be really pleasing to God unless you are Jewish. Maybe you're not born that way, but you've got to act that way. 
as one scholar put it, that is just another form of legalism. That is, they're looking for something other than Jesus Christ to, in order to be acceptable and therefore clean before God. He's, he's putting a little kind of something in the way of being justified. He's saying it's about what we do. It's, a, if you like, a works righteousness. Having to do something in order to be justified. And Peter is doing this, we see, out of fear. This powerful group of Jewish Christians, they're influential. And he's afraid. Here's a question for you. Because the situation here is about table fellowship. Who would you have round for dinner? Here's a question. Who would you struggle to invite round to a dinner party amongst your work colleagues? Yeah, from church. Not, not come from a similar background, but who would you struggle to invite round? It's easy, isn't it, to just give money, to sit at church with folks from all kind of different backgrounds, but who would you not invite to dinner? The question is, have you allowed your cultural differences to become more important than gospel unity? I guess we can also be quite... The word in, it, in some of the books this week was kind of sectarian. Thinking of ourselves, our church, in a way of, oh, we, the way we do things, that's the right way. Not sure about that other church. We understand there are many other Christians in many other churches, but would we sit down and eat with them? Or would we say, oh, I'm going to look at my diary, I'm, I'm not sure you'll fit in this week. Haven't got the time. Again, the same question comes back to you. Have you allowed your cultural differences to become more important than gospel unity? I guess another issue may be class. It's a big issue in this country, isn't it, I think? Uh, very similar to the issue of nationality or kind of racial tensions. We can politely live amongst and even sit in church with people of different backgrounds, different class, if you like. We may even be as polite as Peter, just gently withdrawing. You know, we'll sit down and maybe even on the same row, that would be radical, at church. And, and, and yet, would you invite them for dinner? They might be slightly awkward, you know, in, in comparison to your very suave friends. But would you invite them around for dinner or to a coffee you know, kind of time with your NCT folk? That's children kind of thing, but don't panic, you know, with, with all your, you know, very lovely mummies at Ellsford, would you invite your friend around from church around with that group? Or would you keep them at a distance? Oh, a formal kind of relationship just at church though. What are you doing? Well, essentially you're denying the gospel there. And we must oppose that kind of thinking in ourselves. You're denying the truth of the gospel. And in denying that kind of table fellowship, as, as you might call it, it, even if you've only done it in your heart, you've begun to kind of manufacture a kind of uh, self-esteem by comparing yourself to others. You're saying, this is the way I get my kind of self-esteem. And by only having friends like that and not unifying around the gospel. But the gospel says that we are all unclean without Christ. And we can only be made clean, righteous and justified in him. Justified by Christ 
alone. We must oppose those who deny the gospel. We are not to load each other with guilt. We will all fail in this area at times. Rather, we need to draw people back again and again to remember the grace of God that has been showered upon us in the Lord Jesus. And only then can we begin to live out this grace in our lives, which is our last point. In verse 14, just cast your eyes down there very quickly to finish. We must live in line with the gospel. When I saw, verse 14, that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you, can, you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's saying we need to act in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, literally, what Paul is saying here is he's saying you are not, and the Greek is like, ortho kind of walking. That is straight walking. Ortho means straight. So you go to an orthodontist to straighten your teeth out. You go to the orthopedic doctor to straighten your kids out, I think. It kind of works like that. The gospel is a truth, a message. It's a set of claims that, can be, that we are justified by Christ alone. But that gospel has implications for our lives. We must be straight in line with the gospel, Paul is saying. Tim Keller puts it this way. I thought it was very helpful. It is our job to bring everything in our lives in line with the truth or direction of the gospel. We are to think out its implications in every area of our lives and to seek to bring our thinking, our feeling, and our behaviour in line. (coughs) Given the world we live in, given the assumption of the world that everything is earned or merited, the Christian life is an everyday realignment process, if you like. One that we need to work out every single day. One that we need to help each other with every single day. As Paul did Peter here in Antioch. We need to come back to the gospel continually. So that we might live in line with it. Think in line with it. Behave in line. Be united in line with it. We need to see the free grace that is an offer in the gospel and continually to remind ourselves that we are absolutely nothing without the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the very words that Justin Welby this week, uh, if you put him up, not Justin Welby. When this chap got baptised this week, the centrepiece of his speech um, in St James's Palace was this. This child is nothing, he said without Christ see whether a prince or a pauper middle class or working class or whatever morally upright or morally downright awful whatever your background or your class whatever it may be we are absolutely nothing without Jesus Christ and the only way the only way That we can avoid condemnation as we stand before God at the end of our lives is to be justified, counted righteous in Christ. We need to trust this gospel, put our faith in this gospel, oppose those who deny this gospel. And live in line with this gospel. And we're going to be looking much more in the following weeks of what that looks like to live in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we close.